Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at puremtgo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. Hey everybody, Spencer here. Before the episode, I just want to let everybody know that we kind of talked about it during the show, but one of our editors actually um, had to go to the hospital, and our editor team has needed to quit for health, family, personal reasons. And uh, first of all, we wish them the best. Uh, we loved what they were doing, but it also means that uh, we're in a transition period. Um, due to my week this week, as I would be taking over editing responsibilities, I don't have as much time to edit as I am going to make for moving forward until we find a new one. So there are a little bit of sound issues, whether it's people muting their mics and kind of the mic catching that right as it happens, or the levels aren't exactly the same. I did my best to fix a lot of these issues, but they're still going to come up. And I just want to apologize in advance. I think this episode was fantastic. So was an amazing guest, but I wanted to let people know going into it that that's going to happen and apologize because, you know, we had started to have this really good consistency from ourselves and our editor and, you know, sometimes stuff comes up, but thank you everybody so much for listening. And I hope you really enjoy this episode of Concharted Criticism. Welcome to the 420th episode of Constructed Criticism. I am your host, Mason, and I'm joined by two co-hosts today. I'm going to ask them a little question so y'all can get to know their voice of what's their favorite ice cream. And Abe, what's your favorite ice cream? My favorite ice cream, Mason, is mint chocolate chip. It's so good, especially when it's green. Heck yeah. Spencer, what about you? What is your favorite ice cream? Uh, my favorite ice cream flavor is technically uh, only a Ben Jerry's flavor, and it's uh, American Dream. But since that's not like a normal ice cream, that flavor, counts. Oh, okay. I was gonna say Moose Tracks. Moose Tracks is up there for me too. You're you're allowed to have a, a favorite that's a little harder to get, a little exotic, if you would. Sure. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a cookies and cream guy. I know I don't always answer these, but I'm pretty strong about cookies and cream. I like mint chocolate chip. I, I'll go for a good Moose Track. But cookies and cream is goaded. It's the best I ever think, was. I think those are like literally the three best ice cream flavors. So I'm really glad that that's the three we ended up with. Hot take. No one's allowed to respond. Chocolate ice cream sucks. Let's move on to always improving, though, because that is the main topic of the show. And the main points about getting better. We are going to have Soul Maka, the father of midrange, on here in just about 15 minutes to talk all about midrange and kind of give you a breakdown of what midrange is. We're kind of important in that and go over all that. It's going to be really exciting. But first, we have to do Always Improving. It's the main point of the show. And Spencer, you were out of uh, the podcast. Let's just say out of town, but you were just out of the podcast last week, took a week off. So let's have you go first. What was your Always Improving? I have two because I missed a week. The first one is the value of three wise. We've talked about this really long time ago, like in the hundreds of episodes. Um, 
But I had a player who's a Patreon of ours reach out to me kind of about some stuff, and I told him to use the three Ys. And um, actually, I'll just throw a former co-host of the show, I love you, Trey Under the Bus. Trey commented on a post of Mason's, where Mason promoted his article about uh, Pioneer and like his power rankings uh, shortly after we recorded our episode on it a few weeks ago. And Trey in the comments actually left a comment that was astounding to me. He left a comment about uh, Reese Fang being really good against spirits. And um, the three Y's experiment, Y, W-Y-S, uh, that I did with this person was actually about that. I was like, you know, why why is it such a good matchup for spirits being literally its best matchup in the format? Um, and we really got to talking about it. And afterwards, it, it reminded me of why the three Y's is important in getting to the answer of a question. Uh, where instead of having to do a ton of the work, you can actually get to an answer from somebody that might know the answer really well. And the three whys is something that I believe strongly in. If you're not familiar with it, you ask why three times, or each answer that you're given, you ask why again, um, to get them to the actual point of the problem. And what you're trying to find is the problem and get the solution. And the way that you do that is asking why three times. And I, it was a huge moment for myself and the person that I was doing this with. Um, they both gained an understanding of why Spirits is so favored against Grease Fang, but also understood why the three whys is so good at getting to what we always talk about on the show, right? The, the problem that's being presented to you in a matchup and understanding that matchup. Um, I, and I thought it was really important. Uh, the next one that I have is Working with the Cut. That's the Constructive Criticism Utah team. Um, and this week, uh, Matt Kling played my list in the CC MTG Open. We've got to talk about it quite a bit. I've gotten to change my list quite a bit from it. Um, he was on Discord with me the entire time that he was playing and uh, kind of talking about how his cards felt. I We actually had a moment where I was like, I can't talk to you about this. <laughs> uh, uh, where like I wanted to say something that I couldn't say. Um, and it was really fun. It was really cool to, like, listen to him play without being able to see his cards. And, like, really, I've never done that before. I don't know if you guys have ever done this where, like, you're just hanging out with your friends. It was, it was kind of wild. Um, as the person that was running the, the tournament, I w couldn't see Matt's cards and I couldn't talk to him about his plays. And I just got to listen to his reactions playing my 75. And it, it was really interesting, and then afterwards we got to do kind of like a deep dive on, like, cards that he thought were good, cards that he thought were bad. Um, and honestly, like, just working with this new team that I talked about a few weeks ago has been um, really refreshing for me. I do a lot better and really focus better in these type of situations. Um, and I, I'm just really grateful for it, and I um, am narrowed down into two decks for my remaining Pioneer RCQs. Those two being black, red, mid range, and green, red ramp. So, uh, what about you, Mason? What are yours? What is your always improving moment? Uh, my always improving moment comes from playing in this modern uh, 10k this past weekend, and so um, I went and played one of the card monster games 10ks that they're starting up and doing over here in the south, and I was fortunate enough to top eight the event, which was awesome. Uh, but going into it, I was really using the event as a testing ground for uh, the NRG in St. Louis that I'm playing. And I 
think two weeks from now. Uh, time is flying, but it's an event that's a team event. And so I was really trying to experiment with the four color stuff and see like, okay, how much can I like uh, sort of inbreed for having two specific matchups and then making all my choices about that and then working towards that versus like giving up things to the field. And that, that's where the always premium comes from is where it's like, okay, if I build with the singular well, two goals, really, but the single goal of beating these two decks, right? So I want to be pre-boarded for the mirror, and I want to be good against Murktide region. How do I accomplish that goal while still having a deck that is not just, like, some amalgamation of cards that isn't actually good? And working through that process and trying to figure out, like, okay, where can I overlapping cards and have them in my main deck where maybe typically before I wouldn't do these sort of things and play this sort of way? So, like, for an example, in the list I played for the 10K, I played Traverse the Ulvenwald, where typically I have been sort of more proponent for the Eternal Witness Ephemerate package. And the Traverse the Ulvenwald not only makes my deck more consistent in the mirror, so I make sure that I do my thing and I have my Emrakul that's in my main deck more often, it also makes it so that I can find my Solitudes for Murktide more, right? So that's like me edging that way. And then I was like, okay, well, what am I going to do if I fall behind where these Murktide players successfully set up Murktide with two counter spells, right? And sort of the long game. It's like, oh, well, I can play cards like Supreme Verdict in my main deck, and it'll be good against these two matchups. And luckily, that's also a card that beats just a lot of other decks in Modern. And I made a bunch of decisions like that and really getting to work through that and trying to take what I expect to be as a much more narrow and refined field for a Modern tournament and try and implement it into action. And it was funny. I, I joked with my friend Ellison when we were going to the car that I would be extremely happy to min cash the modern 10k because i was like i don't think i'll play that many mirrors or that many murktides this weekend because in real life tournaments you just don't often play against those things and uh you know just such a much wider range of decks in modern and you know that is what happened i played one mirror match and i didn't play against any murktide um they were there i just didn't run into them right and that happens when you're in these singular tournaments versus a team tournament where people are much more likely to pick uh, more competent decks or generally play the best thing they can get their hands on because it's a team environment. They don't want to let their friends down. Right. And so really sort of building and exploring that. And I haven't finished. I'm not like, feel like I'm satisfied with my deck. I don't even feel like my deck was that good that I played this past weekend, but getting that first, this first steps in this journey, I think is really a big improving moment for me because it's trying to solve a different problem that is so counter to how I normally approach things, which is how do I be as, generally good as possible and then i'll shore things up on the sideboard or i'll pick my battles here and there so it's a really interesting moment i i really love that as like a different way to approach things i i do want to go back to something that you said because mm -hmm. that has been an interesting thing that has been an opposite experience for me in rcqs in modern mm -hmm. um and i don't know if that has to do with like you know 50 person rcqs versus you know however big your 10k was but like uh, I played against uh, Four Color three times in the Swiss at my last RCQ. I didn't get to talk about the fact on this podcast because I missed it, but like I just I just top eight in my last RCQ, lost in the semis, and I played against Four Color four times with Murktide. The only loss that I had to it was in top eight, and I, I don't know. I think that like something you said, uh, I think it was last podcast. Uh, it was either last podcast or two podcasts before that, where you talked about understanding your expected meta. Like, what do mm -hmm. you think is going to happen? And I think that often people will think that Mason is giving you conflicting opinions. That's actually not what he's doing. 
He's telling you what to do in this situation versus that situation. Not a, not a heuristic to follow all the time. And I, I think that often on podcasts you think that we're, I don't know, like contradicting ourselves. Mason, you're, you're actually saying that in a really open field, X was better. Whereas when you could attack the meta, Y was better, right? Yeah, basically. So like... Uh... So my general stance is, and this is like, you know, something that comes up in coaching a lot is like, why play eternal witness and stuff over these other builds? And the general answer I have is that when you play in open tournaments, right, where there's like a lot of people and it's modern, there are going to be a lot of people on Merc Tide and Four Color and Hammer and the good decks, right? Like the, the top of the metagame. But they're going to be just a bunch of people who also show up with what they have, right? And I've played a lot of big modern tournaments with Four Color. You know, I've played... Uh, the Vegas, which is essentially a Grand Prix. I've played a couple NRGs. I've played this these Card Monster game events now. I've played, you know, Card uh, TCG Con in Louisville. I've done a bunch of different big events, like with like big cash prizes. And you know, my total number of games in the mirror is like uh, I think it's about nine or ten, right? And obviously, the deck's getting more popular as time goes on. But it's just, and when you go around and look at all of them, four colors showing up more and more and more. But it just shows that like you're not guaranteed to play against it. And you can have experiences like Spencer. And I would argue that I'm probably on the lower end of expected things to play the mirror. Like I would say that I have like a higher variance of not seeing it. But it's just a reminder because I think people often think like, oh, when I go to big open tournaments, I'm always going to play against the best thing no matter what every round. And that's just not reality. People have different goals and different objectives, right? Like my round two upon this last event literally said, oh, like, I kind of came to have fun today. There's someone who plays competitively, you know, and so they brought affinity, whereas they maybe normally would play a different deck. And um, that was their goal for the weekend was to have fun with the boys, you know, and that's a great goal and a great thing to have, but it just shows like how even people who play competitively sometimes don't have the same goals as other people. And, you know, I'm sure we'll have still talk about this later on the show, but like, you know, you might just prefer playing a certain style of deck over some other style and so you're just gonna play that style and that's okay and so uh that is all to say that's for bigger fields so i feel like in team events often especially as shown in the energies especially in the later rounds the elimination rounds that the better decks really are the things that get played in modern and modern specifically is a lot of four color and merc tide in those events and i expect that to hold true for the coming event and so i'm trying to build a deck that is better in that sort of field because that's the tournament I'm playing and I build my decks to the tournaments I'm playing. So like my deck lists, I feel like are often very bad for Moto because Moto has a lot more decks that attack four color because it's easy to get those things. Whereas in real life, people just aren't going to play Belcher and Calibrated Blast in person at nearly the same rate that they will online. It's just A, you have to buy those cards and B, you have to spend your whole day doing that. And the same logic that holds true for me about not playing four color holds true for them about getting paired into four color. So a lot of long winded thing there, but to try and like, you know, establish what we are talking about here, but that is sort of where we are, where it's like, I'm giving you advice uh, in these kind of examples, and then you can extrapolate them and your events might be different and that's okay. And it's cool to like diverge, but knowing yeah. why you're doing things matters. I, I think it's really important um, to touch on this because I think that it's something that definitely, you know, Mason, you and I have talked about it. And I know that, um, like, 
it happens where people kind of feel like they come away from things that we say on the show feeling like we might have contradicted ourselves by saying having two different conclusions from what looks like the same set of information but the information a isn't the same like mason was saying when you look at tournaments of different sizes or team tournaments or you know uh even things like for me right like when I'm playing at my local store, I know what people are going to be playing for the most part. I know what it is I need to be prepared for when I'm building my Hammer Time deck. Um, but what we're really trying to give you with those examples is always an insight into the process. And the process is what is not changing when we're giving you those examples, right? The the way we're thinking about things and coming to those conclusions and changing, and that's the thing you should seek to emulate, not necessarily pull a heuristic out. So if you're someone who finds yourself feeling sometimes like it's confused, think about how we got there more than what the answer we got to is yeah i'm tr to like use the like teach you how to fish thing i'm trying to show you how to like put the bait on the hook and cast the line i'm not trying to show you here's my salmon it's like why i didn't go on about like how i top aided the event and like crushed a bunch of decks to do it like i could tell you that and i could tell you how bad rhinos is for like the 19th week in a row and how i farmed it to make top eight but i'm not going to i'm going to show you how to had a but it is so bad, Mason. It is so bad. <laughs> Anyways, Abe, how are you doing? How did you always improve this week? Hopefully, it involves some rhinoceros beating. It has nothing to do with beating rhinoceroses unless mm -hmm. Jarvis you is a rhinoceros. Because are they rhinoceroses we were, or rhinoceri? Um, that is a question for another podcast. I think. <laughs> anyway, uh, my always improving moment comes from. Uh, it was actually just yesterday I had come to Sunday and been like, I need to think about what it is I really did to improve this week. And I asked Jarvis um, while we were cube drafting, like if there was something in his process that he thought I could start adopting. And, um, you know, what he fired back with immediately was just like, how do you feel about the last five decks you played? Do you think that you play the right deck in the last five tournaments you played. And I was like, I haven't thought about that in a while. And, you know, as soon as he said that, I just, like, internally was just thinking about, um, you know, is Hammer Time the right place for me to be in Modern? Even, th even though I feel like I play the deck really, really well, it is um, kind of behind to a degree against Four Color, which is a deck that is so prevalent towards the top tables, even of my local events, where I, I know the metagame, there's not that many. Um, there's an RCQ over the weekend that was just one by four color. And the top eight had not only four color, but it had copies of Yawgmoth and, um, you know, another four color variant. Uh, I think it was the combo variant. Like, there are just a lot of matchups where, sure, I can win them with Hammer, but am I playing the right deck for the events I'm playing? And so actually, to act upon this, I reached out to Mason last night um, to kind of talk about what I can start doing to learn decks, expand my range to have good four color matchups for the tournaments where I feel like they're just going to be a deck I have to beat to cross the finish line. And so really uh, having a moment to get even more for the podcast out of Jarvis, even though he was last week's guest, not this week's guest, um, was, was my always improved moment. I'm looking forward to putting some more time over the next couple of weeks into uh, finding the right audible for me when I feel like four color is more of my problem than Merc side. 
I won't go into it, but my always improving moment overall would have actually been one that I applied to Smash because of your guys' podcast with Jarvis. So I will just say that, like, if you haven't listened to that episode, I applied something that Jarvis said very deeply to Super Smash Brothers, and that was playing a matchup from both sides. I played a lot of Incineroar this week in Smash, and um, I it it is it is so crazy how many nuggets Jarvis gave you to. Uh, it it was one of the best episodes of CCMTG ever. I was I am still I still have a sore throat today. Like I was so sad to miss it because I have watched Jarvis's stream for a long time. Um, yeah, that, that is, and the advice that he gave you, Abe, I, as you said that, like, my brain exploded. I was like, yeah. did I, did I do that? Like, <laughs> he played four call like me, baby. You've been like, yes, sir, Jarvis, next advice. There's so many times. Anyways. It was probably better. <laughs> In La La Land, but we can go over to patreon.com where you can support the show and be a patron of the show. Uh, the show will always be free, but if you want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash ccmtg. And one of the benefits of joining it is you get to join the Discord, which is cool, ask questions like for our special guest, Sol Maka, here in a second, and you get your shout-out on the show when you sign up. So, Scott, Evan, Chris, thank you so much for supporting the show over at patreon.com. And, Spencer, I think we have some housekeeping about the CCMTG Open for you to cover. Yeah, if you didn't see it, uh, first of all, I'm sorry. I started Top 8. I was supposed to record so that I could do coverage with Mason, it's totally my bad. I did not record. And it was too late. They had already started. I wasn't going to go back. Um, but I do want to just thank a couple people. One, we had the patrons of uh, Scott, who Mason just shouted out, Adrian and uh, Joshua, who all voted. I actually gave them the vote, and I already said this on Twitter, but it actually is insane to me how cool our patrons are that I was like, hey... In, because we only have, I think we had 16 or 14 or 16 players somewhere in there. I was like, instead of increasing the prize pool for you three, which is basically who it increases it for, how would you feel if I refunded everyone and not just you three? And they all said refund everybody. And I just think that that's goes to show like the goal of this tournament series, right? Um, which is to just help people be always improving. Uh, man, I might cry. I actually was so proud of our patrons. It, like, wasn't even a question for them. Like, do we still get the 500 that's guaranteed? The answer was yes. They're like, yeah, just give everybody their money back. Like, let's go. Um, and I, I, I loved it. Um, the second is, like, uh, our winner, who was Mike. He had already won an RCQ in Colorado. Uh, he did a winner's interview. It's up on YouTube. I thought his interview was great. You should check it out. He goes really deep into Green Black devotion um and then just a thank you that everybody that showed up um i know that personally like i had three of my teammates in this tournament they all made top eight and it was a total blast to talk to all of them um it it is we'll we'll do one again next quarter we'll do one every quarter that we are sponsored by king gridley high so come show up um there were a lot of always improving moments for us and just huge shout out to our sponsor like uh gglehigh.com is the best place to buy magic cards if they're in the u.s they don't ship internationally which i actually knew and forgot to mention every time we did the podcast still our second place winner was still from brazil found a way to uh you know he had he had somebody locally that could help him out and like 
I don't know. I, I just, I really appreciated the community, the awesome people that reached out after the event. And honestly, like, I'll let you guys talk about it for a second, but just our patrons are amazing. I, I just loved it. Yeah, it was great to see everyone uh, come out and do that sort of thing. Also, we have heard you when it comes to like, we know some people really like Modo, some people are like Arena, and it's one of those things where, you know, we're just going to have some events on Modo, we're going to have some events on Arena and those sort of formats. So uh, we love everyone that came out and support this, and we will have events that are like, you know, yeah. historic, explorer, standard, that sort of thing. Those will come down the line. We haven't figured out exactly what the next format is, uh, but we have I'll heard you. I did get feedback from the people playing Mason and Abe, and I'll say this live mm-hmm. on the show, like, people really liked that our format was the format of the RC. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that it, it is pretty likely that the next one will be standard, um, just because the next format is standard, but I will agree with Mason, like, you know, at some point, like, three people reach out to me, they're like, hey, I had already qualified for the RC, and this, I played in this tournament because it was a chance to, like, practice, where we actually don't get that because of the way that it works in the U.S., so I just I don't know I I also just appreciate the feedback. Yeah, and and I also want to just follow up with that if you are a patron who played the event, didn't play the event, even if you're not a patron, if you're a listener who knew the event was happening, didn't play it, we would love to hear why you did play it, why you didn't play it, what would make you more interested in it. You know, if you have any ideas as to what would make our events be better for you we want to hear those so that we can make this something that's even more fun even better able to you know keep on giving you guys really good competitions to play in um this one was awesome as uh especially as one that we really uh kind of put together on on the idea that pioneer was hopefully going to be something we wanted to play because of the rc um and, and it has come together that way that it sounded like people really like that um but yeah, so just give us that feedback. It really makes it easier for us to give you the things you want when you tell us what you want. So, <laughs> 100%. And speaking of giving people what they want, let's start talking to Soul. And now it's time for our main topic. We have a special guest for this episode, the godfather of mid-range, the man that kind of rocked the world in some ways when it comes to it, and that's Soul Maka. Soul, thanks for coming on the show to talk about mid-range today with the listeners. Pleasure to be here. So if someone uh, is maybe newer to Magic and doesn't quite know you, how should they know you besides kind of being the guy that kind of innovated and pushed forward the idea of what a mid-range deck is? And where might they know you from Magic in general? Because your name and the verbiage The Rock is one of the few things that uh, has carried on. So I think that legacy is pretty cool to hear listeners, for listeners to hear about and kind of know that lore for the game. Yeah, well, that's, you know, for sure the number one Thing known for. I originally played the deck back in Urza Saga Mercadian Mask Standard, which goes back to late 99 through most of 2000. Um, the, ge- the deck became better known as an extended deck. Since, you know, the, 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 sorry, the standard version was centered around Phyrexian Plague Lord and Deranged Hermit, but the best known version of it, where it really kind of took off and became part of that format's meta, was extended circa late 2001, when I was 18th at the Pro Tour New Orleans with it, and then Mike Stilnick, who's a Hall of Fame Magic player, um, a month later played 59 out of 60 
card for card and won a Grand Prix with it. So that's awesome. kind of, so, yeah. where, where does the name The Rock come from? Because, you know, current days we would have a, a cool name like The Rock. It would be like Green Black Midrange, right? So why is that called The Rock, you know, for listeners, you know, and this they know kind of the lore behind it too. Why, how'd you come up with that name? Okay, the original build with the deranged hermit and the plague lord, uh, the hermit, of course, brings into play four scroll tokens. And between being a 1 1 creature and having Echo of five, the hermit tends to die a lot. And I have recursion effects in the deck, uh, diabolic servitude specifically, which is kind of a poor man's recurring nightmare, which had rotated out by then. Um, so I would bring back the hermit, make it more scrolls, you know, just amassing a very wide board. The Brock, you know, this was his heyday as a pro wrestler. And he had a ton of catchphrases, one of them being a millions, the crowd would respond, and millions, millions and millions of Rock's fans screaming the, the Rock's name. The Rock would pause, the crowd would chant, Rocky, Rocky. So the Hermit was the Rock, the squirrels were the millions after you recurred them a bunch of times. So that's, that's where it all came from. And over time, the millions part got dropped because it was no longer focused around the Hermit, but the Rock part stuck. Awesome. Today, 22 years later. That's awesome. I love that because of, you know, that sort of in joke slash pop culture thing of the time as carry on becomes synonymous with magic. It really shows like the age and the lore that magic has that not many games can have something like that. You know, that's something that is truly special about our game and something that's truly special about the history of this. I, I actually was going to ask Abe and Sol as the, the fellow boomers on the show. Is there another deck other than Sly that holds their name anytime the quote unquote archetype pops up? It's just those two, right? It's like Green, Black, Rock, and Sly? Well, there are other decks like uh, all, all the combo decks that are named after breakfast cereals, such as Fruity Pebbles or Tricks, except those happen to involve specific cards. Like Fruity Pebbles, that only means, you know, Enduring Removal, Goblin, Bombardment, and a Zero Drop. Uh, tricks only means Illusions of Grandeur plus Domi. You know, there, there is no way to keep making Pebbles decks or tricks decks. Sly, you know, just refers to an aggressive red deck with a mana. So that's in basically every form. Yes, yeah. I think the only exception might be Drago. I think the big three archetypes have that's their cool. kind of uh their kind of like names that, that they go by that are they've transcended time and history. They're just what they are. Much like the big three of anime, the big three of magic, Drago, <laughs> Sly, and The Rock. I love it. Well, so if you're, you know, we have you on here because you are kind of like the godfather of this mid-range strategy, and mid-range is one of the more nebulous and kind of uh, weirder archetypes, you know, when you're pitching it to somebody who's just starting to play magic. You know, you tell them, like, what an aggro deck is, and that word kind of has some connotation to it, right? It's like, oh, it's aggressive. And if I tell you about a controlling deck, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm trying to, like, dictate how things go. But what is like a mid-range deck and what kind of breaks it down, especially when you're kind of thinking of it from your perspective, Saul? Well, yeah, aggro and control are kind of easier to uh, define simply because aggro has to be the beatdown in just about every matchup, whereas control has to be the control in it. You know, that's why they are what they are. Mid-range is more adaptable. You know, sometimes you'll have to be the beatdown, sometimes you'll have to be the control in a, in a given matchup. And even within the same matchup, there might be moments where you have to pivot. Like, just because you're playing, oh, I'm playing against an aggressive deck, I've got to be the control. There are moments you have to pivot to kind of close the door quickly. Um, so, mid-range is harder to define just because there is no one 
card type that has to be in there. For instance, like control has to have, um, you know, sweepers are almost always in there. Uh, control almost always uses uh, blue for counters, although there have been exceptions like mono black control. You know, aggressive always has a cheap curve of creatures, you know, a ton of one and two drops. Um, whereas mid-range, maybe it uses some light permission, maybe it uses discard, maybe it uses neither. Um, like, you know, Naya decks that uh, have, might have, you know, Stoneforge Mystic or you know, things like that. So it, it's, it's much harder to define. Uh, and but the flexibility, I think, is, and the ability to be the control or be the beatdown, depending upon the matchup, I guess, is one way to uh, quantify it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that flexibility of card choice and the ability to like adapt your game plan in the sideboard is kind of like, is that sort of defining characteristic, right? And it's one of those things that makes mid-range mid-range. And so I guess one of the things that I have a, a question for you on about this to kind of delve in this topic a little bit is when you're building your decks, how often do you build them with like a whole 75 in mind? And then from there, you build your sideboard from the 15 cards that are in the deck. Or is that something that you don't really do when you're looking at it? And is that something that changes also, you know, week to week or event to event when you're playing those sort of things? I know you play a lot of, you know, 1Ks and 2Ks in your local scene, but you also, you know, you'll go out to things like DreamHack Dallas or whatever, you know? And so how does that change from place to place? Uh, well, a lot of my building has to, I mean, if I want to play mid-range, you know, that's what I uh, tend to gravitate to the most. I still want to try to build around whatever it happens to be the most powerful card at the time. For instance, with Dreamhack Dallas, um, I built around Renesix. You know, I have four copies of it because I think it's the best mid-range card and in the short list of the very best cards in the format. And you can see that in the build, which, you know, I didn't use, I don't use Black Link Cliffs, which is almost sacrosanct. Jundex for a long time. I had 10 fetchables. It's just fetches, fetchables, sagas, and besages. Um, Previously, during the pandemic, I had a few deep runs on Magic Online, which included qualifying for a Pro Tour with a you know traditional Black Green Rock deck that ran Luris, but Luris in the main. You know, I ran three of them, um, and yeah, because I thought Luris was you know basically the best mid range card. So it, it's really just finding whatever's the best card and kind of building around that. Interesting. Spencer, do you, you seem like you want to ask Sol something about this? I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on all this. I mean, uh, you're like my spirit animal, dude. I don't like really know um, what to say here. I, I know that um, for me, like looking at your deck when uh, in for DreamHack, for example, I was like, this is hot. Like, this is um, a lot of a lot of thought clearly goes into this, and it also comes with experience, right? Like, so much of that, what happens when you're picking cards for a mid-range deck is both understanding what you're building around, or like, what do you think the pivotal part of your deck is? And then what are you trying to beat across from that, right? And one of my questions for you is like, as a person that considers themselves almost a deck builder first, um, you know, how hard is it not to go with what you're just saying, right? Like, I'm a classic, like, Jun player, or... Uh, you know, a ramp player. But I, I'm kind of curious how you don't gravitate towards something like Merktide, which kind of plays that gen role in that same format. 
where it, it actually has a kind of similar game plan to something like Classic Gen? Uh, I think it's just a matter of uh, style preferences. You know, uh, Discard has been a staple of the, the way I like to play mid-range, going back to the original Rock and His Millions deck, which, you know, the Hermit Plague Lord deck had four duress straight in. Um, and even when I played Survival of the Fittest decks, when they were legal and extended, and when they were in standard alongside Urza Saga, I had four duress. Uh, so I just prefer that way to um, control and disrupt what the opponent's doing as opposed to permission. It's just, it doesn't mean one's for sure better than the other. It just It's just a stylistic preference. I mean, Mark Tide is clearly a very good deck. It's probably more consistent than what I play just because you see so much of the deck and it has a top-end threat that closes the game very quickly and is very difficult to remove, playing around most of the usual removal in the, in the format right now. Um, so, yeah, it has a lot going for it. It's just a matter of uh, personal preference. When talk when like playing Magic, I think that's something that doesn't get talked about or brought up enough, right, is preference. And this is something that we mentioned here on the podcast some, and I try and tell people a lot when they're asking me, like, well, like, what do you think about these last two sideboard slots, right? And it's like, sometimes having, like, a preference in the way you want to play the games or approach the games does matter. And sometimes that's as small as, like, you know, you're playing unlicensed Hearse versus Rest in Peace in your sideboard, right? We're going to be as big as something like Souls Talking here. It's like, yeah, I'm going to play, like, discard spells and these sort of cards instead of counter spells, right? Do you find yourself willing to kind of break that dynamic sometimes, or do you kind of just prefer to play the way that you like to with, excuse me, with discard spells, or is it a thing that you're always kind of open to changing? Uh, I am open to adapting, and, and I've had to in, you know, some uh, shallower formats like uh, Explorer and Historic, um, where I've pursued more of a proactive plan there, and still they've been black decks, so they've had access to Thoughtseize somewhere in the 75. Um, okay. Yeah, it's interesting. So when you're looking at mid-range decks, we kind of have a couple things that we were kind of curious to hear you talk about and kind of go over because they seem like they're important. And the first one is a mana advantage, right? And how trading your cards up on mana. When you're looking to build your... Uh, mid-range decks, how often are you hyper-focused on, like, the mana curve itself? Because I know that for DreamHack Dallas, where you ended up getting second in case listeners don't know, um, you lost to a very handsome gentleman in the finals. But your deck was a little bit bigger on the mana uh, curve in some aspects compared to decks. There were also other mid-range decks in that top eight, you know, other Jun decks that had way more three-drops than you. So how focused on having a mana advantage with your cards are you when you're building your decks and thinking about mid-range decks? Um, well, this deck, you know, it's low curve because the, the one mana cards and two mana cards are, are so good. You know, Rackman is just exceptional that one. And, you know, Inquisition and Dossie is all the best removal. Most of it, or much of it, is that one, you know, between Bolt and Push. Um, so I know the uh, person I beat in the semis played some things like Reveteer's Charm. Um, I don't know. Let's see. I have only a Tracker and K Command as far as three drops. And uh, you know the tracker is in there because of its synergy with Rin and Fetchlands. Um, so I mean, I'm always looking to play the most efficient cards possible. That's why you know I was so thrilled with something like Fatal Push got in because before that, Black Green really had to play two drops for removal, which you know puts you at a disadvantage when you're facing an aggro deck full of one drops. You're just always trading down the map. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's certainly always on my radar um, to you know 
play the most efficient cards possible. Okay. Uh, when you're playing some of the shallower formats, you mentioned like historic explorer. If you, you know, if you end up playing standard, do you look towards like the mana stuff there, or is it more kind of like how you mentioned with the like when you're building your game plans, are you just looking to maximize whatever you think is the strongest thing? Like, how do you kind of differentiate like when to do mana versus strongest thing, right? Because Luris is like very strong, right? And like you could still uh if Luris wasn't banned, like if it was only banned companion, you could still play Luris, right? Like would that be something you lean towards over Ren, which is maybe a little weaker but more mana efficient? Uh, well, with something like Standard, I think Standard so much of the time has been around finding the best cards and just building around the best cards. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, in any you know, as you get into broader formats like Historic, uh, synergies start to matter more because there are going to be more powerful cards. You know, some of them might be current and Standard, but others will be older. Um, so synergies start to matter more, I think. You can build a more synergistic deck with broader format. Um, but you know, for standard, I'm looking to build around the identifying build around the best card. Gotcha. Can I ask? Yeah, thank you, Mason. I actually want to ask about this because I think that so often what happens in standards is it actually starts out as this like aggressively slanted or controlling slanted or mid range format, right? Where like the best card is a X card, right? Where it's like whether it's chariot or whether it's goldspan dragon or whether those are like some recent examples, right? But additionally, what ends up happening so often is that if mid-range ends up happening in standard, people go bigger and bigger and bigger, right? They they scale up. Mm -hmm. When are, when do you think in those type of formats you think it's appropriate to actually scale down? Hmm. Yeah, if, if mid-range is the best thing, then certainly the ideal ways to go over the top. You know, we've seen that with cards like Gargaroth or even an extreme example, Ugin the Spirit Dragon back in, uh, you know, Khan's era. Um, I guess it just depends upon the cards, you know. Um, like, what is what is the best? If you, if someone wrote an article about this, was it Ari Lax, perhaps? Like, if all the uh, four drops are just so much better than all the three drops, then you want to be playing the four drops. You know? I think this was a Lucas Ciao article on Abzan Agro for what it's worth at the time that you were actually talking about where people were going big with Ugin the Spirit Dragon and his team actually went small with the two drops in the same Abzan deck, if I'm not mistaken. Is that the article you're talking about? Um, I was talking about a much more recent article. Oh, okay, sorry. We were talking about cards like you know Adeline that are out now, but are you know are the four drops just better? You know? So it, it really, especially when you're talking about standard, it depends upon the relative power levels of the cards that are that happen to be out at the time, as far as whether you know you're better off going small or going big. So I feel like um, what makes mid range kind of hard to conceptualize sometimes is right, like unlike aggro or control, where they're kind of existing towards the edge of the spectrum of how you could build your deck and your game plan. Um, you know, we've talked a lot here about you know finding the best cards and playing those it's easy to talk about but um you know is there a process is there something you gravitate towards as far as like what is the best kind of card what is the best card that you're looking at when you're looking to build a mid-range deck and you're looking to explore what what you can do between the lines um is there like some sort of aspect of those cards uh that really draws you and says oh this is something that i can kind of build both sides of the game plan out front. 
Uh, I think the cards I've gravitated toward the most in mid-range decks, at least in the era I've been playing modern, which is about mid-2010s onward, is just sources of repeated value. Like prior to MH2 finally forcing me to, you know, get off Blackbird, I was on Blackbird for so long with four copies of Dark Confidant. I felt like that was, you know, obviously it's fragile. Um, you know, and again, we're talking about a few years before Red and Six came out. But if it lives, you just get two cards a turn. That's extremely powerful for two mana investment and then no mana each turn to get cards. All that matters is you have to either kill your opponent before your life runs out or find some other way to uh, offset that, whether it's Scoos or Kalidus. Um, and I think that's carried forward into the uh, mid-range decks I've built since getting away from the traditional rock shell of Bob, Armagoid, Liliana in the Veil, building around Luris, whether it's straight in, granted Dark Confidant still in that deck, but Luris just struck me as you know, another value engine. It can do something very similar. But Mishra's Bobble, it's draw a card every turn. And then once Luris got banned and I couldn't use it as a companion or anything else, that role is now occupied by Renin Six, which effectively gives you a card every turn. So sources of uh, value, something that can get you a free card every turn is something that stands out to me as where I want to be when playing Ben Rich no, you go, you go. I was going to say, I feel very advantaged playing against other mid-range decks that don't have rain. Like, I'll meet black-red or black-red splash-white or whatever, and if I have rain and they don't, I, when I sit down, I feel like, even, you know, mid-range proficiency aside, I feel like 80% or better at win. I have, I have to ask this question, as two of my last three RCQs are uh, Pioneer, where, like, Green, black, green, red, sorry, feels like the legitimate best deck in Pioneer, where you have game against everything in Pioneer. I don't know how much you've played this, Soul, but, like, I've never played a mid-range mirror where I was the green player and didn't feel favored against, like, the black-red player or whatever. Like, if if there's green in my mid-range deck, I feel substantially favored against the non-green mid-range decks. And I'm actually curious if this is something you've thought about in Pioneer. Um, when I... Start to, okay. I played Pioneer heavily when it was introduced late 2019 into the pandemic, shutting down everything and essentially killing Pioneer for a year, year and a half. Um, I was playing Black Green, I built around Traverse the Olenwald. I had you know trackers and scuses and a lot of your the tools you'd expect. Um, looking at Pioneer now, uh, if I think to brew around whatever Black Green cards, it just feels like right now Red has stronger tools to offer than green does. And that's specifically two cards, uh, Bone Crusher Giant and Fable of the Mirror Break. It just seems like better than whatever you could be doing in a green-based mid-range deck. Because one is a two-for-one or just a super, very efficient redrop. The other is a pair of two-twos with some filtering, which is super important in mid-range because one of the biggest downsides to mid-range is having the wrong tools for the job. And Fable of the Mirror Breaker, besides giving you raw card advantage and a pair of tutus for a total investment of three mana, also filters away the wrong cards. So right now, I would, if you're going to play mid-range in Pioneer, uh, don't beat yourself up trying to make a green deck work. Just play Black Red. If you are insisting on playing green 
to try to beat the black red decks, Elder Gargaroth might be one of the best tools because it feels like there aren't a whole lot of ways to kill that in red black right now. Um, but your best bet is probably just to go black. That's, that's a great answer. The two decks that I'm considering are green red ramp uh, list that we'll talk about probably uh, that we actually have already talked about here on the show before you came on, but um, and then black red's the other one, and I actually think your answer is perfect. I, I think that you know, what Black Red is doing is, and the two cards that you mentioned are the two cards that I would mention. So, great answer. Yeah, it's interesting because one of the last things we wanted to kind of talk about before getting into some more general end wrap-up stuff is the closing speed of a deck, right? I think one of the real strengths of Black Red and Pioneer is that it has pretty efficient beaters. Like, it has a couple of two-man three-twos, so, you know, I would say your average power of three of your three drops is about three. You know, like Fable the Mirror Breaker, like you mentioned, is two two twos, right? So it's like sometimes it's four power, sometimes it's two, depends on you look at. It. You got Bone Crush, you have Graveyard Trespasser, but you have like a decent amount of pressure that actually ends the game and allows you to kind of take these minimal advantages you have from getting them off game plan and then close the door. Is that something that you value in a mid range deck often, Soul? Um, or is that something that you feel like is so like format to format when it comes to like ending games and closing games out? You certainly want to have a good closing speed because there are some, you know, I look at burn. I think of that as a matchup where every turn you give them on average is two damage. So, you know, their average draw is worth about two damage counting the lands. Um, so you certainly want to be able to close quickly and you want to have the efficient threats to do that. Um, it's an important part of, uh, how you build your mid-range decks. If you're just going to have a bunch of cards that you're up, but you're not really closing, you know, that's not good enough. Mm -hmm. So I guess our, one of the last things I want to kind of ask you here before we open up to some Patreon questions is why play mid-range? Like if you're someone who's listening to this and you're, you know, trying to figure out what kind of deck you want to be playing, where you're unsure, maybe like in a format like Pioneer or any other format, and maybe kind of just some general like, well, should I be playing a mid-range deck or not? Why would you play mid-range? And what would be kind of the selling point slash the, you know, thesis behind it? Uh, you have a lot of decision trees to it, probably more than you have with many other strategies like some aggro decks. And you'll be able to find lines to win from a variety of situations. Um, and also, typically when playing mid-range, you won't lose to a single card. Uh, the more linear your deck is, while you get more free wins, the flip side of that is you find yourself losing to one single unbeatable card, you know, whether it's Leyline of Sanctity or Rest in Peace or Collector Roof, you know, whatever it is. Um, so fewer auto losses, um, even if you also have fewer auto wins and, you know, bigger decision trees. You know, if, if you're skilled, if you're proficient, um, that can be rewarding. Awesome. Well, we have some listener questions uh, from the patrons, and you can support the show by going to patreon.com slash ccmtg, and by going there, you could have asked soul questions or asked future guest questions, just like we did with Jarvis last week. Yeah, so our first uh, our first question, uh, we're going to use the one from YouTube first here, um, is, what are important questions that you ask yourself while piloting mid-range decks? This comes from uh, Renktos92. What questions do I ask myself when piloting a mid-range deck? Uh, I guess the the speed of the matchup. Is this a matchup where um, 
uh, how how do I fetch in the matchup? It might be you know sequencing my land drops. Um, how much life can I afford to lose if I have effects that are going to cost me life? Um, yeah. What matters in the matchup? What is the most threatening thing I need to stop? How can I lose? Which is important for any player to think about in any matchup, whether it's limited, whatever. You know, how do I lose? Or you know, how do I win? Um, uh, what cards is my opponent likely uh, to side with? Does that make anything in my deck potentially uh, useless? For instance, a lot of the time, I'll find myself siding out one of my three sagas against decks that are likely to have uh, some kind of moon effect. Um, so, you know, how can I counteract what my opponent is likely to do? Like when I would play against death and taxes a few years ago, when that was more of a thing, I would often side out all my targets. And do I have something to bring in if I'm going to take all these out is another question to contemplate in your sideboarding. In that case, yes, I did. I had Plague Engineers and Kalidists. Um, so always having a plan in case one of your linchpin cards is useless. I, I like that answer. I, I think that it goes into what this podcast has talked about for a long time. The next question comes from Chase. He asks, uh, people love this archetype, and he capitalizes love. People really love this archetype. Um, and they try to make some variation of it work in every format. Why do you think it resonates so deeply with so many people? And I, I actually want to add to this question. Um, specifically, why do you think that, like, green black gets on that level of like mono black like not just mid-range but why is the soul maka version of mid-range <laughs> so deeply ingrained with people uh i think mid mid-range broadly might appeal to people because with control they think okay it's maybe this is too big brain maybe you know i don't want to have to play 45 minute matches every round whereas with aggro maybe they feel like you know, once you've played a certain number of games with the deck, you're bored because all the games look the same. Whereas with mid-range, you get variety, you have some potential for quick wins, but you also have, you know, your longer decision tree kind of games. Uh, as far as why black-green, I think those colors just happen to do mid-range very well. If you look at um, signpost uncommons and draft archetypes, uh, green-black is almost always planted somewhere in the middle you know it's never the most aggressive deck sometimes that'll be you know black red or, or sorry yeah it's been black red it's been red white you know it's never been the black green deck but black green has always also never been like the slowest in draft uh mid is just what black green does best based on you know what the color pie says those colors do i want to add to what you just said and also ask an additional question um Abe and Mason and I have a long time, and we just, we've done, this is, this is the third macro archetype episode. It's not really that because this isn't part of our series, but, um, we, we pretty strongly took the stance that like aggro was the hardest, control was the easiest, and mid range actually was in the middle of difficulty. Do you subscribe to that? I think there are certainly, um, percentage points, you know, a lot of percentage points to be gained with uh, aggro, yeah, sure. Uh, with aggro, uh, a newer or you know intermediate player can play it with enough proficiency to maybe make a deep run. Whereas a true master, like say Patrick Sullivan with red aggro, can eke out those advantages. You know, look no further than the famous Ross Marion uh, 
top eight clip from an SCG. Um, I, I'm not, I haven't played very much control. I've more often, if I have defaulted to aggro or control in a format I'm less familiar with, it's been something like red aggro. So I think control of the three macro archetypes is the one I'm least qualified to speak much about. Um, so yeah, I'm really not sure whether to uh, agree or disagree with the idea that it's easier to clear. I think I think that your first part of your answer was exactly what we needed to hear because I think that so often people just assume aggro is easy because like players can win with it by taking the aggressive lines. But I I do think that what you said is true. Um, the next question that we have uh, is how do you consistently do well in tournaments with decks that have fairly even matchup spreads? A lot of mid range decks. Uh, do you rely on your opponents drawing badly, dodging bad matchups, or just being the best player in the room? Uh, obviously, that doesn't always work, right? Sometimes you lose to Mason Clark in the finals, but we want to hear about it. <laughs> well, um, well, he is an excellent player. That was certainly the matchup I most wanted to dodge. Um, whereas yesterday in my uh, 5K, my first opponent presented Yorion. I'm like, today's not going to go my way, is it? I did beat them, but my next opponent presented Yorion as well, and I myself one and one and it was an uphill battle um uh with mid-range you're not as worried about dodging because you have a chance against almost everything you don't have a lot of 80 20 matchups but you don't have 20 80s um so just being among the better players in the room is part of it um playing an archetype i'm more proficient with than anything else you know means i'm going to be able to eke out more advantage with that kind of deck than I would with, you know, another deck that I'm not as, uh, don't have as many reps with. Uh, so, so it's really a combination just about all the things you just mentioned. I know that's maybe a cop-out answer. But, uh, it's still a great answer. Um, our last question is kind of a fun one. Um, we answered this at the beginning of the podcast, but what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? <laughs> uh, you know, I have... Not really thought about that much. Uh, I don't know. Mint chocolate chip, maybe? Let's go. It's a great answer. Let's go. <laughs> it's got to be the green kind, though, because then you've got the chips, but you're almost black and the ice cream. Can I, can I ask? Yes, do you it have, has to be green. Do you oh, have God. the mint cream, the mint creamies in your, where you're from? I don't I don't know how, cre how far creamies go across the states. Like, do you have the mint creamy that's covered in that thin layer of chocolate? The, the what now? I've never heard of a mint cream. Oh my we don't have those on the East Coast. Okay. Yeah, I, I didn't think that they traveled that far, but I had to ask. Uh, man, maybe I'm going to have to buy some dry ice and send all three of you mint creamies. But it is it is the best way to eat mint ice cream by like a substantial margin. Okay, that's something I've never heard of, so you'll have to yeah. shoot me a link or something. Well, when when you're in Utah for the summit, there you go. You you figure it out. You if know? You're, if right. you're here, if you're here, I'll buy you a pack of mint creamies. We can uh, we can talk about mid range and uh, just green black rock mint cream. Oh man, <laughs> we have to record a TikTok. So if you're here for MPG summit, we're, we can eat mint creamies and talk about. I might be too old for a TikTok, but we can. <laughs> a podcast is about as far as soul will go when it comes to technological advancement. He'll lurk in a Twitch chat. He'll be on a podcast, but anything more? Come on. Have some respect for the game. No, but Sol, it was great to have you on this episode. Thank you so much for taking some time to answer these questions and talk to the listeners about this. I'm sure the listeners have got a bunch from it. I thought it was a really great uh, interview. And thank you so much for taking the time. And 
We'll have to see you around. I'll, I know people will see you at DreamHack Dallas for sure. And you said you're going to go to like Vegas and Summit as well, right? Yep. I will be at MTG Vegas uh, end of October. I will be two weeks later in Utah for Magic Summit. I'll be playing in the uh, main event of each. You know, I'll be playing in the modern uh, bait qualifiers. And I'll be playing in the sealed for the Lotus. And then a week after that, uh, Mason and I, uh, I'll, we'll see each other in the finals of uh, DreamHack Atlanta. We're going to have to run it back. You know, I, I'm going to do pretty good these modern 10K, so we're going to have to show them how it goes. You know, we run things kind of in the South, so you no. understand. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sol. And let's go into our Patreon question. All right. And then we get there. Uh, straight up, though, uh, while you're here, I'd be I'd love to take you to dinner, Sol. Uh, any food preference you have, I'll take you to the best place in Utah. So Awesome. That's that's where I'm from. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll I'll message you on Twitter. Um, I've stopped recording for the editing, but dude, mm-hmm. you were a great guest, and I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It's been a blast talking with you all, and then I hope everyone watching enjoy it. Yeah, you did a great job. Thank you so much, Sol. I'll make sure to see you around there, and uh, you're gonna have to come out to one of those card monsters in Chattanooga. They're gonna come back and. Uh, he, I was talking to the guy, and he was saying, like, probably January, February, they're going to come back to Chattanooga and maybe even go a little deeper. So they might I'll, end up in Atlanta. Yeah, so. I absolutely will. I'll, I'll drive to Chattanooga. I'll drive to Knoxville. You know, mm-hmm. um, I hope the uh, attendance this weekend doesn't deter them from trying again. But, uh, you know, it was just a matter of there was a big event locally. So. No, but when I talked to the guy, he seemed pretty uh, – he was like, yeah, we're going to be willing to burn, like, $20,000 in the first couple of these – and just kind of like committed to trying to do something. So it seemed like they knew that it wasn't going to be great in Chattanooga. And it was just a little less than they were kind of hoping for. They were hoping like, I think he said like he was hoping like 50 more players came up from the Atlanta and surrounding areas, but honestly, not that bad. All things considered since they didn't have much time to promote either. So yeah, I think a lot of people would have, uh, I mean, there were 43 people in the wasteland event. There were about 20 more qualified. And I'm guessing a handful of them might've actually been up there, but uh, yeah. if not for that, I think many of those people would have driven two hours to play high stakes modern, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, was sweet. it was well run too. So awesome. Well, we'll let you go. Have a good night, Saul, and we'll uh, see you around. Likewise. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Catch you later. It's so perfect, Spencer, that you said ice cream you mentioned earlier in the show because I was totally just going to steal Mikey's thing for the intro. I know. That's why I did. I knew what you were going to do. Hard read. Uh, Easiest yeah. hard read. Mute ever. yourselves really quick. Let's take a restroom break and I will put the uh, be right back up for those on YouTube. This is good. I actually need to grab a little laundry out of the dryer. Yeah, I'll go use the restroom. That's going to do it for our main topic today. It was great to have Soul on. It is time to do our Patreon question. Once again, if you want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash ccmtg. The show will always be free, but you get to ask Soul some questions there. You get to ask us some things, get your shot at the beginning of the show, and part of the Discord community where there's a lot of talk going on about modern, pioneer, and all those sort of formats. It's really exciting. Our Patreon question this week is actually one that was kind of positive to Soul that I thought would be interesting for us to talk about, but we kind of let Soul have 
his time with it. And it's how do you consistently do well in tournaments with decks that have a fairly even matchup spread in parentheses, a lot of mid range decks. Do you just rely on your opponents drawing badly, dodging bad matchups, or just being the best player in the room and skill diffing your opponents? And I think all of us play decks that are, you know, been mid rangey enough in our life to kind of cover this sort of question or have, you know, maybe some polarizing matchups. So Spencer, I'm curious what your kind of first thoughts on this question is. I, I love playing decks with polarizing matchups, and I'll, I'll talk about why. Um, so I've been playing a lot of Mark Tide. Um, in fact, we just talked to Soul. Um, maybe it was actually before we talked to Soul that I talked about this, but like, I was just crushing four color with Mark Tide uh, at my last RCQ. And I, I, I think that you have to be pretty confident to do what this person just said, to be, like, the best player in the room and just best player people out. But additionally, even if you're going to try to do that, you have to have a plan. You don't just get a best people people out of nowhere. Like, there are so... People have gotten a lot better at Magic. Um, and you actually have to have a game plan. Um, and, you know, when Michael was the coast, we talked about how... Um, a game plan is better than no game plan. Like, for example, I just board out my ray events on the draw against four color. I think that um, we we actually had a conversation, for example, on our team Discord uh, this last week um, where I was pretty opposed to how certain matchups were playing out in testing. I was like, I don't understand the point of having Ragavan if you're not going to play it on one against four color on the draw. Just board it out. Like, it just doesn't even seem good. Um, like, and the reason that I believe that is actually a conversation that I, I think I've talked about it in our Patreon Discord of, like, PVO, like, just make them have it. Like, they either have the running six or they don't. But if they have it, like, are you gonna, when are you gonna get an attack with a, uh, Ragavan that's good? Because to me, it, I don't think it ever happens. Um, and I think that it's understanding, like, even if I'm wrong there, which I could be, um, understanding that that's my belief and how I'm going to prepare for the matchup and how I expect the matchup to play out means that I have a leg up on my opponent if they don't have that level of understanding of how the games will play because of the consistency of my deck. And I would say that that happens really often at the RCQ level, whereas at something like when I go to, like, Grand Prix or, like, 10k plus events... It's more about uh, understanding the truth of the overall matchup. Um, and, you know, I play a lot of decks, like a lot of ramp decks, where the your matchups are super polarized, right? And so my sideboard has to be for specific things. Um, and that's kind of my answer. I mean, ramp, ramp is a flavor of mid-range that we'll get into later in, like, the Archetype series. Um, but that that's kind of my answer. What about you, Abe? Yeah, so um, I'm going to agree with what Spencer's saying with a caveat. Because I, I, where I agree with Spencer is that in the short of it, I do play mid-range to, in some way, player diff my opponent from a conceptual level. Like, if I'm choosing to sign up with a deck that is really, really close in a lot of matchups, it's because I think that I am more often than my opponent by a substantial margin, going to be able to use the context of the game and the cards in my deck to make those percentage points fall in my favor. 
However, this is something I would only ever do and only really try to do in formats where uh, my alternatives, the like counterfactuals to me saying I'm going to play the mid-range deck, my, all of my alternatives leave me with matchups that I'm not okay with um, with having poor positioning. I'm not okay with the polarization in those matchups because I'm not sure I'm getting the benefit. I think my best spread is to actually be really tight and hope that you know my cards are lining up when I don't have the opportunity to, to create that edge by having a better understanding than my opponent. Um, or making that, that those edges occur. Um, like a perfect example is right now is where in Pioneer, I continue to play red-black because I think that, A, I have a much better grasp on what's going on in the Pioneer format than most of my opponents. And uh, I think that it lends itself to a lot more success with the deck. I think it's a prerequisite to succeeding with the deck. Um, and two, I think that all the other decks are too exploitable in comparison to Black Red. And so by playing the deck that I think is not exploitable, I'm forcing my opponent to engage in having a plan for me when my deck is very versatile. And then I think that my cards often enough are powerful enough or line up well enough to win the matchups where I am naturally unfavored. Um, so yeah, I would say that in short, it's player diff, but in long, player diffing is a lot of work and a lot of planning. And like Spencer said, it's it's about winning on the conceptual level and uh, and stuff a lot more than just being like, oh, I'm really good at magic, so I'll win. You know, it, it's about having having put in the time to plan around how you're going to make sure that when it's a matchup that could be somewhere between, you know, a little unfavored and a little favored, you're doing the things that make it a little favored every time you come. Yeah, mine kind of I'm similar in that sort of vein where it's like. I mean, it's interesting, right? Like, you could argue that the four-color deck I played this weekend is the mid-range build of it, right? And kind of is. Where, like, it is the mid-ranging lean to the four-color piles. And a lot of the time, I think that I sort of gravitate towards playing the deck that I think will give me the best chance to win. So when kind of talk about but like how do you consistently do well in tournaments with decks that have fairly even matchup spreads is I think you're kind of picking them on weekends where like these two mentioned conceptually, it's a little better than even. And so you're going into these weekends pre-prepared and ready to go. And you kind of expect things and believe things to be better than even, even if conceptually they are even on the aggregate of the field at large, you're like, well, this I don't believe to be true for here where this is still like the best thing given everything. And so it's why I feel like for a long time, uh, people shied away from mid range or in inversely, they also leaned on mid range for too long at certain periods where they thought it's like, Oh, I can always play to people. Right. Which is like not true. And they're like, Oh, I can't. So I won't do this. When in reality, it's like, you should be, if your goal is only winning. Right. And we just had soul come on. So talk about how souls like, yeah, I enjoy playing Thoughtseize, so I don't play Murktide. And Murktide is totally reasonable, but I like playing Thoughtseize. And it's like, yeah, like that's a reasonable thing to say. And like, if that is your goal, and one of the things that you know you really value is having fun, you can still do well and do those things. You just kind of accept a little bit of uh, lost percentage points, even if it's just one or two. And sometimes those things bite you in the butt, sometimes they don't. But you're often like, you're picking these mid-range checks because they are better than 50-50. And sometimes you get it right 
sometimes you get wrong on what you predict and what you think the metagame's going to be like, and that's okay. But you just, you know, don't hear about people and stuff where they pick it wrong when they play the mid-range decks, you know, because they're just not playing them all the time for the most part, you know. And Soul will even mention, you know, I, I've talked to Soul, you know, before and on DreamHack where sometimes, like, it's just bad to be a mid-range player, you know, and things just go poorly. And But it's fine, you know, those things happen. So, you know, it's kind of about picking your battles, I think. And uh, it's why sometimes something polarizing next, like Spencer has mentioned, is really good because you get the better finishes, you know. For, um, to so. add on to what you just said, I do think that, like, you know, Matt this, Matt, in just our tournament, right? He His first two rounds were against Black Red with, the, with my Green Red green-red deck, right? He obliterated them. Like, it was it was everything that I have said that matchup is. Like, he even had people have duress, thought, sees, life, things. I'm like, all of it. He's like, it didn't matter. And when you, when you attack format, like, you expect then Matt probably has, like, a really bad heroic matchup, or, like, a really bad humans matchup. And because of the way that that happens... But then you have to decide, okay, do I then dedicate uh, those uh, RPG points that we talked about in previous episodes, right? In those sideboard slots to that, or do I do something else? And one of the things that we that you talked about with, with uh, Soul in this episode, Mason, was kind of that versatility, right? Or like ramp decks, mid-range decks, uh, rampy mid-range decks, aggressive mid-range decks, controlling mid-range decks. They have this like ebb and flow where they get to like find their spot and when you get it wrong you're gonna do really bad and when you get it right you're gonna do really good and it some some of that comes down to rng right like where it's it's actually not near control if you hit that i think hammer for what it's worth is like the most mid-rangey aggressive deck i've ever seen where like it actually can be like a turn two deck or like a turn 12 deck like, it, it gets to grind you out for no freaking reason for some, in some world. But if, if Hammer runs into, like, the wrong stuff, like, if it doesn't hit Murktide, for example, which is, like, almost a buy for the deck, you actually are in, you, you're kind of sad. So, I, I think that understanding, like, where you sit on the scale and where you want to be on that scale of mid-range is really important to this question. Super important. That's because also censors because Hammer Time is a Splinter Twin deck. But another way to get your question on the show is to go Hammer to is going to youtube.com and leave a comment on an episode, and then we will read it here. This uh, comment sometimes a comment, sometimes a question, but this one is: I love when Abe says Hammer Home as the Hammer Time guy. Uh, thanks, Patty, for that one. Hammer Abe really likes Abe likes to hammer at home. Sometimes likes to ham it up. You know, there's just a lot of different range of hamming and hammering that Abe does. It was funny, because when you were talking about the Traverse version of Four Color, I was like, all right, if Hammer's, like, Splinter Twin aggro mid-range is, like, and Traverse is, like, mid-range, because, like, uh, it's so funny, because the deck is called Four Color Control, but it's, like, not that, <laughs> like... The build I played this weekend is definitely not a control deck. You okay. Do, like, well, 
I mean, like sometimes you reach inevitability, but you actually don't have inevitability like you do with the Eternal Witness. Yo, that's and the it's thing, like, right? Is the, yeah, yeah. The Ewit is like almost like control combo, and then like the 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 Risen Reef deck is like mid range combo. It's so weird because you're just playing an amalgamation of cards, right? So I'm I'm kind of curious uh, if you were to hammer home Hammer Time, Abe. Uh, what is it? Oh, it's it's an aggressive deck with a combo, like with a combo in it, like Tarmo Twin. Like no, not anything like Tarmo Twin. <laughs> not even close to Tarmo Twin. Someone say it's don't exactly say like it's Tarmo like Tarmo Twin. It's I would. Are you sure about that? Yes. Okay. I'm absolutely sure sure about that. Let's say that he's hammering uh, at home. You know, Hammer Time is like a fine wine. It just gets better with age. Anyway. <laughs> That's going to do it for the questions on the show. If you want to find us, you can head on over. Uh, sorry, let me cut that out there. You can cut this one, sir. Anyways, that's going to do it for this week's episode. Make sure to check out the rest of the network. We have Common Knowledge, a popper podcast, all about that. And we have Drafting Archetypes with Sam Black. You definitely want to check that out. Y'all didn't know this. Spoiler previews, sorry, start next week for Dominaria United, which means we have rotation for standard, which means we have to do our goodbye all the standard episodes, which is a reminder for me to y'all right now. And... It means new cards might mean new shakeups. How exciting that all starts next week. So you're not going to check out, you're not going to miss those things. And in fact, those formats there, you want to make sure to support the show. If you want to do it in a way that doesn't cost money, you can do that by like subscribing, reviewing and sharing with your friends. All of those things really help us to grow the podcast. And if you think there's something of value to that, and if you want to leave feedback for the show, you can do that as well in the comment section, or maybe get your question read on the show. If people want to find us individually. Spencer, where can they go to find you? You can find me at Spencer 13H. You can find me every other week at Knee Turner Pod uh, and every month on Smash Through. And then this week, probably around the time that this episode comes out, you can find me on Mythic Cast on the Constructive Criticism Network, where I will be talking to Mythic Michaela on her RCQ win. Um, special bonus episode. We haven't done the podcast in months and months and months, but uh, we've talked this week, and I just, I'm so proud of her. Huge shout out to her. Um, it, it's pretty easy to be down on yourself in Magic, and um, Michaela, just a couple weeks ago, it might have been just last week, was tweeting about how she didn't feel like she was meeting her own expectations of herself in Magic. And uh, one of the reasons I like do podcasting with Michaela so much is that we're so much alike, and... Um, Right after realizing that, she kind of put her nose to the grindstone and immediately won her next RCQ. Um, I love Michaela. She's, like, one of my closest magic friends at this point. Like, that's how fun it is to do a magic podcast with her. So look forward to that episode. But, yeah, that's where you can find me. Abe, what about you? Find me over at twitter.com slash morenothings. Uh, DM still open for coaching on Hammer Time, which apparently now I've done the thing I hate and allowed myself to be branded as a one-trick uh, player for. But I'll be fixing that. Like I said, I'm always improving. Uh, but I will be. Co- I do offer coaching in all formats um, across all sorts of decks. I would love to help you. 
Hey man, uh, had I known you earlier, you totally would have coached me on Bant Company, which would have been part of our mid-range episode had we not had a guest, so. I can coach you on a lot of things. Just know that, listener. Mason, where can they find you? Yeah, definitely check out A for Tarmarch Fun Coaching. You can find me <laughs> over at twitter.com at Mason E. Clark. You can find me each and every week over at Card Kingdom, uh, where I write uh, about magic every week there. This week, it's about why you're losing in modern. So you want to make sure to check out that article when it comes out. You can find me over at twitch.tv slash the Mason Clark, and you can reach out for me for coaching and everything in between from, you know, you can do four color to general stuff. Happy to help. We reach out. We can see if we're a good fit via my email at Mason E Clark at gmail.com, or you can reach out to me via Twitter DMs or something. And I'll reply to you as soon as I see it. Thank you all so much for this special episode of constructed criticism. We'll see y'all next week.